Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I have a really interesting guest, and I love to say his name. His name is Melvin (laughs) Felton. Love it. So I found this guest kind of by accident, and uh, there's a great publishing company that we bring a lot of authors on, and it's the John Hunt Publishing Company. And I have loved every single author that has been here, every guest that we have had, and they sent out their library of different books. So I said, well, let me just take a look through this. And I came across a book that said the universe within the surprising way the human brain models the universe. And I was sold. I was like, what the heck is this? (laughs) And so I knew I had to have Melvin Felton on my podcast, just basically so I could continue to say his name over and over. And I'm really curious about this. You know, as you guys know, we've had some really great scientists and physicists on this podcast, some in the top. And this was a very new concept for me. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about it and was hoping that you guys would be interested in this topic as well. Also want to let you guys know we have taken a small little break from the podcast. I know there hasn't been an episode out in a couple of weeks, but just want to let you know that Mike and I are working hard behind the scenes. We are on location filming a lot for our after death communication documentary that hopefully will be out next year and we are beginning to finish up some of that filming so if you see breaks in the podcast that is why and but without further ado let me introduce you to our guest again melvin Felton. he attended two of the top historically black colleges and universities in america morehouse college in atlanta georgia and hampton university in hampton virginia From 2003 to present, Melvin has been employed as a physicist at a U.S. National Science Laboratory. Much of his professional research has concerned remote sensing of the lower atmosphere. However, he has also conducted research in the fields of cybernetics and computational neuroscience. Melvin has presented his research at international conferences and has published in the peer-reviewed journal Frontiers in Computational Neuroscience. When not pondering the nature of reality, he spends his time producing hip-hop instrumentals. And of course, that sold me too to get him on the show. (laughs) You guys know my love for music. And The Universe Within is Melvin's first book. And he lives in the Washington, D.C. metro area. So he's on East Coast time with me. And he has a lovely wife and two sons. So Melvin Felton, welcome to the Path 11 Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. So when I was reading your book, The Universe Within, I learned that you were originally from New Jersey. So I have a best friend in Jersey. Where in New Jersey are you from? Well, I was born in Newark, New Jersey. But as a young child in early elementary school, we moved to the suburbs in Piscataway, New Jersey. So central Jersey. Central Jersey. Okay. My friend lives in Bergen County, which is kind of right close yeah. to the New York border. Uh, right. But do work airport. I've flown out of there quite a few times. Me too. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And I was actually just in Atlanta, Georgia. So it's kind of cool to see that you went to school down there. And I went to Tybee Island. Are you familiar with Tybee Island at all? I am not familiar with that. Yeah. It's about 20 minutes from Savannah. And it's basically like a big tourist place for the ocean. But it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed Georgia. It was the first time I actually spent some time there. Mm -hmm. So it was really nice. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. Yeah. So, all right. So... Your your book title jumped out at me, mm-hmm. The Surprising Way the Human Brain Models the Universe. And of course, my first image was thinking about what the brain looks like and like the yeah. neurons and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, OK, I want to hear more. Now, I did my best to read your 358 <laughs> some odd pages. And right. I, I like the way that you put it together. Some of it, I have to be honest, is a little bit over my head, which is why I'm really excited to have you here in person so I can ask you questions. And so yes. you can dumb it down for me just a little bit. Um, gotcha. Really fascinated about the brain, you know, with the brain, because in some of the work that I've done in mental health counseling, we've used, uh, they're called tapping techniques to work mm-hmm. with the prefrontal cortex of the brain and to also help to calm the amygdala down, which holds the trauma okay. response mm-hmm. and take people out of the reptilian brain, which you also talk about when you're teaching us about the three different main parts of the brain. So I have a general understanding of the way that the brain in human behavior and emotions can work but never really thought of it in this term of being a model of the universe. Right, right. So hold it on tight for this conversation. All right, all right. So of where to begin? Why don't we first start off a little bit with, you know, how how does a young boy become interested in wanting to become a physicist? And I know that you mentioned you had some early questions when you were young about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it just... It's something that I can remember. It's one of my, you know, furthest memories way back growing up. It's something about science and just learning about the nature of reality always attracted me. And so, you know, growing up, you know, you you, you get, you know, religion coming from family. And, you know, I, I, I'm naive, so I'm trying to buy into all of it. You know, it's, it's something that my family is doing. But at the same time, you got this signal coming from society or what have you about science. I'm learning about science. And, you know, it seemed conflicting to me. And over time, though, eventually I just gravitated completely towards science. I mean, I had encyclopedias in my room. I tell, I tell my mom to this day, that was the best thing she did. You know, this is, this is the 80s we're talking about. So we actually had the physical books, the yeah, physical encyclopedia <laughs> set. Yeah. So they were elsewhere in the house. And she decided to move them and she decided to put them in my room. So I tell her to this day, that was the smartest thing you've ever done. Because I would just, I might have plans to go outside and play with my friends. But before I actually pick up that phone to call my friend or before I actually go down the street to his house, I say, let me look in this book real quick. And that will turn into like three hours of me just flipping through the book. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on the nature section. Even a lot of time on other things like sports, just it's just good to have something like that. Good to have had something like that in my room where I could just really learn about a whole bunch of different topics. And it just, you know, uh, fed my desire to learn, basically. And, you know, from there, I just gravitated more and more towards science. I majored in mathematics at Morehouse, which, well, I went into Morehouse at the time, you know, computers were really entering the home and and, and computer science was the, the big way to go. So the counts, the counseling that I received was, okay, are you good? What's your, what's your strongest subject? 
I was like, math, you know, high school math was my strongest subject. Do you like computers? Yeah, I guess I like computers. Computer science is the way to go. You have a great salary. You know, you like math. Computers are big. That's the way to go. I took intro to computer science and hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. I, I just, I, I was a fish out of water. It didn't resonate with me at all. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I need to call an audible quick. You know, I don't want to fall behind schedule here. So I was like, you know, the science and math, and I chose math. And when I jumped in those, those major courses at Morehouse, it spoke to me instantly. Just, just something about that abstract way of thinking about things and about systems and relations and proving things and theorems. And it just, it, it really fulfilled me over time as I matriculated through Morehouse. I didn't know what I was going to do with a math degree. You know, I didn't want to be a teacher. I didn't want to be an educator, but I, I, I just was not, you know, Morehouse is a small liberal arts school. So we didn't have a whole bunch of you know, research grants floating around and, and access to doing different types of research. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then my senior year, I lucked up and saw an advertisement for a physics program at Hampton University. Now, the, the key to that is Hampton University already has a presence within my family. I have two older sisters that went to Hampton. So I spent a lot of time, like my middle school years, I was on Hampton's campus. I spent my spring break with them. I went to class with them. So I knew Hampton well. So the idea of completing the trifecta, you know, like, okay, there's three kids. I went to Morehouse, but, you know, if I go to grad school at Hampton, that would, that would be a, a good thing. That would be a, just a nice little nugget for my family. But also the fact that the physics, the particular program was atmospheric science. And they collaborated with NASA because there's NASA Langley right there in Hampton. So the idea of saying, okay, I, I, I did math. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. But math applies to physics. I'm interested in physics. The atmosphere seems interesting. It's working with NASA. It's Hampton University. I'm there. So that's how I ended up switching and studying physics at Hampton. And that's where I learned to become a researcher. And that too resonated with me. Just, just diving into a, a topic and figuring out the best way to extract information and communicate it to other scientists and you know, the, the layman, like that's where all of that came alive within me. And so from there, I actually was employed as a physicist and it has been a physicist ever since. So, and I, and I'm very proud to say so. Amazing. I have to say that even though you didn't want to be an educator, guess what? That's what you're doing right now. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. I totally get it. You and I've, I've even, I've even, I've even danced around that educator role even more so since then. Good, good. And, and yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so it's probably also a big accomplishment to be able to publish a book and, you know, write a book. And I feel like every time I meet people that put their first book out there, there's usually a second and a third and a fourth that usually comes. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if you have, you know, something ready to go. But yeah. So how, so let's explain what a toe is in, in, in physics, because some people would be like, well, what's a toe? What does that mean? Yeah. And I know in your book, you also talk about how this is kind of the real, if I am understanding it correctly, the main goal of physics is really to have a toe right. that will be able to explain the universe. But there's been so many different theories out there and you highlight a lot of a lot of them in your book, too. But can you explain what is a toe? Because this 
is also a toe, your book, right? It's, it's I, I believe it, I believe it is the, the groundwork that will lead towards a toe or a, a theory of everything. Yes. Okay. All so right. go ahead. the current state of, of physics, you know, we have two major pillars in physics. We have quantum mechanics, which talks about the micro world. You know, the, the, this is a, a realm of a physical reality that we really don't have firsthand experience with. We're talking about on the scales of atoms and, and fundamental particles. They start behaving in bizarre ways, you know, on that tiny space and time scale. But it, quantum mechanics is one of our most successful theories, and it completely captures the nature of, of physical reality on those tiny space and time scales. But then we have relativity theory, which comes from Einstein, of course. And that talks about the universe on grand, much grander scales. We're talking about on the scales of galaxies, galactic clusters, you know, the universe at large, or also situations of very strong gravitational fields or situations in which physical systems move at close to the speeds of light. These are very extreme situations, which we also still do not have much firsthand experience of. But these two theories almost explain everything that we can fathom right about now. There's a few instances, though, a few rare physical instances where we actually need both of them together and they fail. And these rare instances would be to describe black holes. A black hole is quantum in nature, but at the same time, it's, it, induce, it creates the strongest gravitational fields that, that we even know of, right? It accelerates things close to the speed of light. It makes time stop. So that's, you know, relativistic. So we need relativity theory. We need quantum mechanics. We bring them together to try to completely describe black holes. It just doesn't work. They don't seem completely compatible. Also, the beginning of the universe, at least the Big Bang Theory, which is somewhat controversial, but you know the way the story goes, again, it's kind of similar to a black hole. You have this quantum beginnings, but extremely highly energetic, where, where you would need the relativity aspect to, to explain everything, but it just doesn't work. So that makes people think that we're missing something. There is some other theory out there that would consume quantum mechanics and relativity theory. It wouldn't change them. It wouldn't disprove them. But whatever this other theory is, it will kind of suck all of this up and add whatever needs to be added or change the way we're looking at things in just the right way for everything to fit together. So that's what physicists mean when they refer to, to a theory of everything. Now, what, is that? now, what does that mean? Okay, so basically what that means is that theory would be able to explain the physical reality on a very fundamental level, like all aspects of physical reality on a very fundamental level. Does it mean it could explain, you know, the dynamics of your emotions when you're in conversation with your best friends? No one's really saying that a theory of everything is going to reach that level of, you know, explanatory power. But we're just talking about explaining physical processes on the most fundamental level. So that will be a theory of everything. I talk about string theory a lot in, in the book. That is kind of the leading candidate to be a, a theory of everything. It's not an established theory. It has a lot of problems. A lot of people don't like it for one of his main problems, which is, as of right now, we see no way of verifying its predictions. So, I mean, it's a theory that's not completely formed yet. There's a lot of details that physicists have not been able to actually iron out yet. 
And then let alone, even if they did, the experiments to verify the theory seemed ab absolutely impossible. Like right now, we have the Large Hadron Collider in Europe, which I forget exactly the dimensions of it, but it's on the order of kilometers, you know, in terms of the circumference and uh, how big this structure needs to be to accelerate protons and, and smash them into each other and study the fallout from, the, from this process so we can actually understand what's going on in terms of, you know, the particulate matter on the most fundamental level. Like this, this, this structure is huge. The estimate for the size of the particle collider that would be necessary to actually verify some of the predictions of string theory is, is that it would need to be the size of the galaxy. Like that's, that's not going to happen anytime soon, if ever. Right. So string theory has some major problems in, in that aspect. Cause yeah, you know, so people are like, look, science is about, you know, yeah, you make predictions, you, you come up with your mathematical expressions, you make predictions, but you also need to perform an experiment to verify. Right. So if you can't perform that experiment, people are saying that doesn't even qualify as science. That's philosophy. Maybe it's, very impressive mathematics, but does it have a relation to physical reality? Mm -hmm. So what I'm hoping will lead from my efforts here is, well, there is an alternative that will at least bring theory, string theory closer to physical reality. If there's a model system that could be studied, and maybe we could see the correspondence between string theory and this model system, right? And then... There you have a direct link between string theory describing something physical. Now, I'm actually saying that that model system is the human brain, and I'm saying that the human brain is a model of the universe. So by proxy, that would be a direction that I think string theory could go off in the future and say, well, we can't really, we can't create this giant particle collider, you know, the size of the galaxy, but yet we can actually, and have been studying the human brain. So I think that's a, a viable route towards advancing string theory. And, you know, it might not even just be string theory. String theory is the one that I dove into and wow, I see some things, but you know, there's other theories of quantum loop gravity, which is, you know, I didn't have, like I said, I haven't looked as deeply into that as I have string theory, but I do see hints of resonance between what, what I learned about loop gravity and what I've learned about the brain. So, you know, uh, some of these other theories of everything's, or at least candidate theories of everything's, might also benefit from the fact that the human brain could be a model of the universe. Mm. And, you know, wouldn't it be interesting, let's say that this is, right? You're, you're really onto something. And what I find interesting is like the brain is right here. It's almost so obvious to study, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just too obvious. It's been it's under our noses the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's yeah. what I was thinking. So I know that um, you had said to me before we kind of hit the record button that there's a trend in science that is really looking at this, that you're not necessarily the first person that has brought this up. But so can you talk a little bit about maybe the buzz of why the brain is starting to kind of come up now and be spoken about in science as looking at yeah. it as possibly an explanation? So it's interesting because you kind of said earlier, you know, you know, you hear that phrase, the human brain as a model of the universe. So you just think of the image of the brain. Right. And then you think of what you know about the universe. I mean, you don't really, there's nothing there. You don't really see an image that looks the same. 
You know, there's there's been an image floating around the internet for quite some time now, and it's a simulated portion of the universe. So it's based on our our, our best understanding of the nature of the large-scale universe. It's based on physical theory, and you can simulate the structure of the universe. And I think a lot of people by now have seen images related to this. It's like, it's called the cosmic web. So it's like this big web of galaxies, you know, all interwoven together. Well, there's an image floating around the internet where if you take a subset of that, right, you can find what starts to look like neurons. But each little bright point that you see is actually a galaxy in and of itself. So basically it's galaxy clusters they can form these clusters, but then they can also form these long filaments, right? And it's all it's all encased in dark matter. If you ever heard of dark matter, it's a type of matter that adds a gravitational influence to the matter that we actually can see, but yet we can't directly see this other matter. So it's not even, I mean, we, most people believe it's actually there, but we haven't observed it. It's not exactly verified yet, right? But anyway, the, the our understanding of the universe is you have this cosmic web of matter that we can see, which is these galaxy clusters, these galaxy filaments, and it's all encased in dark matter. Where there is an image where you can actually, it looks like these galaxy structures, galactic structures, I'll call them, systems of galaxies, looks like a neuron. And right next to it, they put a corresponding image of a neuron in our brain. And it's, it just looks the same, like you got this globular structure that's like the cell body and you have dendrites coming off in different directions it looks the same this image has been floating around for a while and it's very compelling right but it's not until recently actually that someone people have really been starting to take this seriously like within the last few years there was a a study that's been getting a lot of buzz where scientists actually studied the network structure of this cosmic web the simulated cosmic web of our universe and then looked at the network structure in our brains and have concluded, wow, it's very similar, mm -hmm. okay? Now, also, even on a more fundamental level, there's been other studies looking at similarities between the fundamental network structure. Now, on a much more fundamental level than, say, these large, massive galactic structures, we're talking about down on the smallest possible scales of space-time you can actually interpret space-time to be a network, a dynamic network. Well, they've looked, they compared that to not just the brain, but to complex natural networks that arise in reality. And they found similarities. And one of those natural complex networks that arises in reality that they found similarities with is our neocortex, the outer layer of our brains. So that's just two looking at network structure. But even beyond that, and this to me is actually even more impressive, there's actually now another trend where physicists who are working on the equations of string theory, so these are equations meant to describe our universe on the most fundamental level. There are multiple groups who are starting to look at their equations and say, you know, they kind of resemble neural networks undergoing learning. Because if you know anything about neural networks, you, typically, nowadays, especially, most people refer to artificial neural networks. So networks of artificial neurons is kind of the technology that's underpinning artificial intelligence. So, you know, you take 
these, you take this technology, but you have to train it. You have to feed it information before it can actually start to work its magic. Well, there are expressions, there are mathematical expressions that, that govern the changes between the relationships of, of these neurons. The physicists looking at their equations to describe the universe are starting to see a parallel between their equations and the equations that govern the dynamics of, art, of neural networks undergoing learning. Well, what is the human brain? It's a neural network. It's just not artificial. It's, you know, a, a real natural biological neural network. And in fact, there's even a trend in, in to advance artificial intelligence by making the underlying neural networks more brain-like. There are researchers that are like, you know, how, how are we going to... So humans, we have general intelligence. Like we can learn within one context, but then take the lessons learned there and apply it elsewhere. With our AI technology right now, if it's really good at classifying images of animals, if you start feeding it other types of imagery, it's not, it's not going to perform well. It's not going to, you know, change and adapt. So the trend now is how do we make our AI technology like that? Well, the human brain does it. And right now our artificial neural networks are similar to the neurons in our brain, but they're more simpler. They're, they're way simpler. The connections between those artificial neurons to, to form the network is simpler than the connections between our in our in our brains. So what if we make this architecture more realistic? So if if we have scientists looking at the mathematical equations describing the universe and seeing a parallel with the equations describing neural networks, and if we make these neural networks more realistic, sooner or later this thing is going to come together where it's like, wow, perhaps the universe is a brain. And so I'm hoping that I'm at the forefront and I'm hoping I've produced a valuable resource to scientists in the future who continue to try to, you know, blaze a trail along this trend. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions. So when you're talking about the neural networks of when they're learning, it makes me think of the term that we've heard more recently called neuroplasticity of the brain and how you can change the brain. The brain can learn new things. And when I think about consciousness expanding, like who we are as a soul, and as we're trying to grow and learn from experiences, the brain has the ability to do that too, you know, has the ability to heal and to grow. So that leads me into wanting to talk to you about consciousness in the brain, because I know that there's a lot of people that say, you know, is, is it the brain that controls the consciousness? Is it the consciousness that controls the brain? So if we're looking right. at the brain as the universe, is it still the consciousness, you know, that's controlling the universe? Or is it the brain that's controlling the consciousness? And do you have any thoughts on that? I do. That's, a, that's actually a very good question. Keep in mind, so I, a little lead up to answering that question. You know, I, I embarked on this path not knowing, first off, I didn't even know if I was going to find any kind of connection between the picture emerging out of physics and the picture emerging out of neuroscience. I just knew that, oh, that looks like a void in this landscape of, of things that I'm researching, whether it's esoteric philosophy, whether it's scientists who also have looked into a connection between esoteric philosophy and modern physics. It seems to be a void. Like no one actually compared the picture of the universe emerging out of physics and the picture of the brain emerging out of neuroscience. So that's when the light bulb went off. 
I have to do that. I can do that. I have to do that. Right. But I had no idea that I was actually going to find anything interesting. Hmm. Well, I did, obviously, because it led to the book. But one of the most shocking things I think to me, I kind of still remember the day when I really started seeing this possibility. So I'm saying that I'm saying that the universe is like a cosmic brain. Okay. But here's the kicker. It's a cosmic brain in a non-conscious state. So we, all humans on planet earth, enter this state routinely when we go to sleep. Now, when we go to sleep, you go through periods of REM sleep, you go through periods of non-REM sleep. REM sleep can be classified as a semi-conscious state. That's where the dreams that most of us typically remember, they occur in REM. Non-REM, your brain is very busy, very busy processing memory, episodic memory information, the stuff that you experience during the day. Your brain is, is heavy at work at, during non-REM working on this stuff. But we're typically not conscious of this, of, of these processes. You don't wake up and say, oh, you know, I, I experienced something when I was sleeping. You know, if you, you know, you don't draw something from a non-REM period and then, you know, express it to anyone, you know, like that you consciously experience that, right? So this is a non-conscious state. So in that sense, yeah, we're in a cosmic brain, but it's not conscious. So I'm not saying that this brain is willfully thinking up, you know, everything around us, this universe that, that we perceive. That's not what I'm saying. Now, if that's what you believe, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I'm just saying that based on my research, based on the correspondence that I've seen, I think that the state of the universe right now is a cosmic brain during one of these non-conscious information processing sessions. Now, within that, now, our brain is capable of incredibly complex structure. First off, our brain is, is, is known to be kind of fractal in nature. The same structure, or at least a fingerprint of structures that you would see on a large scale, you could see on very tiny scales within the brain, right? And what I'm saying is during this information processing session, this, these, where they process memory, where the brain processes memories when we're in a non-REM state, Complexity increases over the course of this session. Complexity increases to the point where the neocortex or our brain starts to show its self-similarity. It starts to manifest its self-similarity. And I'm saying that us, the human brain, is an example, or at least as of right now, probably the most extreme example of that self-similarity. We are like little model structures of the universe on much smaller scales. Now, our brains are able to function on a different time scale. We're able to become awake like you and I are right now. We're in the waking state. Later on, we'll be in sleep states where we're cycling through the different stages of sleep. Well, I'm saying it's possible that the cosmic brain does the same exact thing. It's just that we're embedded inside it. And right now, it's in one of those non-conscious processing sessions. But so to even strike a little bit closer to, to the heart of your question, is it the brain control or is it the brain producing consciousness or is it consciousness controlling the brain? Well, I'm not saying that there's any conscious aspect to the cosmic brain, you know, controlling anything. That's number one. But also number two, you know, there's some interesting research out there that 
<laughs> there's this whole big debate about how much free will do we actually have as humans? They're able to, in the laboratory, they're able to identify the point in your, when the information is buzzing around in your brain, scientists are able to see before you even know, yeah. before you even catch, like, you know, you, you decided to move and you said, okay, right now is when I decided to move. But scientists are able to see before that and say, no, 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 he, they're about to make that decision. So that question, that, that adds to the debate, is there free will? Or, you know, what's controlling what? And in my opinion, I think that consciousness is all, first of all, I think that the purpose of our brains is form, form defines function. So I'm saying that the brain is a model of the universe. That, so that's, that's form. It, it's form. It's a model of the universe. Well, guess what? It also functions to model the universe, right? And so, and, and you know, that, that applies uh, in, on many different levels. Collectively, as a group of intellectuals, we're trying to figure out the nature of reality. But individually, our brains are modeling our, you know, current situation to the best of its ability, based on the best information that's available and prior experience. So I think that it's, it's just all a part of that projection. That's your consciousness, your sense of self. It's all a product of that model produced by, by your brain. And it produces, it, it, it actually models that aspect of, I think it actually accurately captures the fact that we do have free will. Yeah, scientists can kind of see that maybe the decision was made before we can articulate that it was. But your brain is just saying, I decided to move. That's it. It just produces, that's, that's part of the output. So I, I just think it's a little subtle frame switch to kind of maybe get beyond some of the, the philosophical hurdles. Yeah, well, that delay makes me think about, too, of putting your hand on a hot stove. It still mm -hmm. takes a while for the hand to register that it's hot, even though the right. brain is able to detect it before we pull our hand off. Right. right. It's like the signals have to travel all the way to your brain right. and <laughs> that processes it. And then, then, oh, it moves. Right, right. Yeah. You know, the other thing that comes to mind, too, do you know, and I, I don't know the statistic offhand, but how much of the universe have we actually explored? Percentage. It's a small percentage, right? Like like actually like a, a physical, like a, a satellite or? Yeah, like what we, what we know about the universe mm -hmm. and then the amount of the brain that we use, right? Again, I'm, yeah. kind of, I'm kind of thinking in terms of, oh my gosh, maybe Melvin is correct here that the brain is right in front of us and we should be studying that. But you know, I've heard that we only use about 10% of the brain. Like we don't even know, we don't know a lot about the brain and how we can maybe expand that function. I mean, I know that they're studying it. You know, why can't we use 100% of the brain? Then when I think about how little of the universe has been explored, it almost again correlates yeah. exactly to how much we have explored the brain or understand the brain. So this notion that we only use 10% of our brain, I think it's a, it's a I don't think it's a useful way to, to look at the situation because technically, you know, if you use a hundred percent of your brain, you'd be foaming at the mouth, shaking on the floor, you know, having an ep epileptic seizure, right? Mm -hmm. So the brain is not designed to be used like that. Yes. At any given time. Yes. There's only a subset of the brain active, but that's the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not saying that there's no, not saying that there's, 
nothing that can be done to improve, you know, what, you know, the way you perceive reality and stuff like that. Not saying that, but this concept of 10% versus 100%, you do not want 100% of your brain active right now. Like you, you really don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd be calling 911. So could we um, say that too about the universe? Do we really want to know 100% about the universe or what has happened? Or are we going to be foaming at the mouth <laughs> having seizures once we really know the nature of reality? Like, Maybe we're only supposed to know a small fraction. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're right. And you know what? A lot of people have probably gone crazy trying to figure out the nature of the universe. So you might be on to something. There, I but, think we're both on to something here. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, there's a lot. First, but you said it already. There's a lot we don't know about the brain. I mean, we know some general aspects of connectivity, but we do not know a lot of details about individual connections between neurons. You know, people who simulate the brain kind of, they kind of capture statistical features and just apply that to try to simulate aspects of the brain. We don't know a lot of the details about, there's just too many connections to be able to observe and capture. I mean, there's great work being done they call it like they call it the the connectome. So you got the human connectome, like with with genes, but you also have the connectome in the brain. And there's a lot of work being done, international work being done, to try to take small pieces, very very small pieces of say the neocortex of of rats or whatever, and and map out all of the connections. But you know that's of that's in its infancy. That that type of work is in its infancy. Now, if we switch to the universe. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, like I said, we we seem to think that there's something like dark matter out there that is exerting a gravitational pull on galactic structures, but no one's seen it. <laughs> you know, that that's what makes it dark. Like, it, it, it doesn't seem to interact with the electromagnetic force, meaning light. So it doesn't give off light. If light shines and goes through dark matter, this is theoretical. If it goes through dark matter, it's not going to interact with it, meaning it's not going to bounce off and come back to us so that, oh, we see that there's something there. So there's a lot, there's a a ton of of stuff that as of right now, no one has a way of verifying. There's a lot of theoretical stuff that we may never actually be able to verify experimentally. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. So as we're kind of coming to a close, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is your artistic ability with music. Because I was like, oh, I I know I'm going to like this physicist because (laughs) he's dropping beats behind his book. So he actually made a little bit of a soundtrack where I think you can listen to it as you are reading the book. And uh, so I got a chance to listen to it. And we are probably going to sign off and play some of your music at the end of this podcast so people can get a little taste of it. Cool. But but I have to say, like, I'm, I'm curious to know who inspired you, because I heard a little bit in your music that the song that I really liked was Flow State. I heard it's like a little jazzy. There's some jazzy undertones. I felt a little bit of Jay Dilla. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, okay. with Jay Dilla. Yeah, 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 yeah. of course. I feel like you're my generation of Tribe Called Quests, because there was no doubt. <laughs> no there was doubt. a Tribe <laughs> vibe in there. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. I'm just curious to know who inspired, uh, you know, who inspired uh, your music and the beats that you. Well, in terms of inspiration from what you just said, I mean, you, so Dilla for me came later in terms of, you know, being an inspiration, but you said it, tribe. I mean, look, I grew up in New Jersey in the 90s. So 
that that's the golden era of hip hop. Yeah. So you you name any group at that time, and it's an inspiration to me. Okay, mm-hmm. and you know, jazz has always been an uh, influence to to hip hop. Funk has always been an influence to hip hop, and so. When I was at Hampton in grad school, you know, I had to, you know, I had to hunker down and study quite a bit and I needed to get away. First off, I always liked beats. Like even when I was young, I never touched the beat machine. I never even seen anyone working on the beat machine. But I noticed that whenever me and my friends would get some new music and we'd listen to it together, I noticed my friends would keep saying, did you hear what he said? Did you hear that? And I'm like, oh man, like I was actually busy listening to the beat. So then I started asking them, I was like, okay, when we get new music, what's the first thing you you listen to? The vast majority of them would say what the MC was saying. That's when I was like, oh, wow, I think I'm, I think a little differently. I, I get to that later. Like I, I maybe on subsequent listens, then I try to listen in detail to what was said. But anyway, now with that little nugget, let's fast forward to my time as a graduate student at Hampton. You know, I need to study for hours and hours and hours, but I kind of need something to help keep me going. I love, I'm a hip hop head 100%, but you know, the lyrics is too much of a distraction. Like I just can't focus on what I need to focus on with all all these lyrics. So then that's when I started to collect instrumentals. I started to get all, as many instrumentals as I could get, because I, I always been a beat head. So I actually like that. That would help me in my study sessions. But then I noticed, you know, when I'm just driving around, when I'm driving around in the car, I like to listen to these instrumentals because it, it helps me. I can continue thinking about what, what it is I need to think about without being distracted. So I just became a huge beat head. And when doing the research for this book, again, I relied on instrumentals. There will be times, April, when I started to see, and I, you know, I'm not going to say I, I saw actual facts, right? I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, what I present to you definitely is correct. I feel confident enough in it and I feel comfortable enough in it to release this book to the world because I think it is a great idea and a great way for people to think and to just consider it, you know? But there were times when I did this research, when I saw parallels that blew me away, okay? Now, with that insight, you could imagine the rush of emotions with that insight. And this is how it always go. I would be kind of hunched over, you know, the notebook or maybe the laptop or the book or whatever it was that I was studying. And when I saw the connection, I would kind of just fall back in my chair and just dwell in that moment. Just think about that connection. Like it was the most mind blowing thing I'd ever seen. Right. And then all of a sudden I noticed the beats that I was listening to was like amplifying that moment. Because, you know, there's an emotional aspect to our experience with music. That's when the light bulb went off. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't just want to provide a book. It's that experience. Like if I could induce that in other people, if they could read my book and really like the ideas and the way it makes them think, and then also have that gel with music, that's it. Like that moment in time, I want to bottle that up and I want to provide that. So that's when the idea, like, again, I. I just started making beats in 2011, which by now, it's that's a long time ago, right. but, you know. You're an expert so, now. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is why that's actually one of the things I'm starting to push now. I got the book out. Now I'm like, okay, I want to really get a little bit more established as a musician. Like I actually officially want to put stuff out 
you know, for the for the world to enjoy. And that's one of the things on my to-do list. Beautiful. Well, I love it. I love the combination of it. It's so unique. Thank you. And we're definitely going to take this show out with a little bit of Flow State by Melvin Shelton. And right. and we know, too, you know, I, I've interviewed quite a few people and one of our documentaries was pretty heavy on binaural beats in the brain, mm-hmm. you know, and creating yeah. that four hertz of that deep meditation. Uh-huh. So again, I think about, all right, you're on to something. You want to study the brain. You got the music going, the music and the brain and what it does to elicit kind of this altered state of consciousness. Hello. Right. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Love it. So, all right. Well, I could probably talk to you hour for hours about music, but I know that our time is coming to an end here, but it's been really wonderful. I'm so glad that I stumbled upon you and your work and that we're able to put it out on our platform to the world. Again, the book is called Universe Within, The Surprising Way the Human Brain Models the Universe by Melvin Felton Jr. He is a junior. And where can people find your book? Is it just Amazon? I mean, we'll put links in the show notes, but where can yes. you that? I mean, you know, Amazon is, is definitely the first place you can go. I mean, you can go to John Hunt Publishing. You can go to melvinfelton.com. And then you also from there have a link to experience the beats, the playlist that I put together. So Amazon, John Hunt Publishing and MelvinFelton.com. Awesome. And the beats are on SoundCloud. Are you going to be putting them up on Spotify or anywhere else? That's what I was alluding to in terms of officially, more officially, you know, putting, putting my work out there. As a matter of fact, I have a meeting later today concerning that. All right. All right. Good. That might be my brain tapping into your future. Who knows? There you go. There you go. Would love to have you on again if you, you know, if more things are found and you expand your research and want to come on and talk about music and the brain, would love to have you back. Thank you so much. I definitely enjoy talking to you. So I would love to reach out in the future if I Once I put out new product, I'm going to reach out to you. All right. We love that. And thank you all so much for listening. And I hope this topic really excited you like it excited me. It was something so new and so fresh. And I hope you enjoy Flow State by Melvin Shelton. Take care, everyone.